I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's program, a conversation with Stanley Chang. We are capable of going much smaller than 20 gauge, and the issues currently are whether we stay with the 23 gauge or try to proceed with 25 gauge. First this, what could be better than listening to world leaders in ophthalmology talking about important clinical issues using the on-demand power of podcasting? How about getting CME credit for it? I'm psyched to tell you that you will soon be able to get continuing medical education credit for doing just what you're doing now. As seen from here, the first podcast for physicians is about to become the first podcast to offer its listeners CME. I'll have more to say about CME at the end of this podcast. As seen from here, all the quality of a national meeting every week on your MP3 player. By the way, now would be a great time to subscribe. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing, and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. On May 26, I met with Stanley Chang, chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology at Columbia University's Edward S. Harkness Eye Institute and one of this country's preeminent retinal surgeons. I wanted to know what's interesting him right now. Dr. Chang spoke about 25-gauge instrumentation, about ICG-assisted membrane peels, and about vitrectomy for diabetic macular edema. But before we get to the cutting edge of vitreoretinal surgery, I asked about a topic of more immediate interest to many of our listeners. With the growing importance of medications which are administered intravitreally, I asked Dr. Chang to speak about intravitreal injection technique. There's no question that intravitreal injection of medications will become uh, a much more prominent, uh, much more frequently used way of administering medications until some solutions have been found in uh, slow delivery, continuous delivery of medications uh, in the eye. I think it's most important to make the patient comfortable and to reassure them that this is not a very uh, painful procedure and to have them fairly relaxed when you do the procedure and then also to make sure that the the local preparation is adequate. That means that there's no blepharitis when you do the injection to treat with uh, both betadine and topical antibiotics uh, before the procedure and some topical anesthetics some of which can be applied just locally over the area where you're planning to put the needle. And a lid speculum and gloves are helpful but not absolutely necessary. The main objective is to pass the needle through the eye without having the shaft of the needle touch any part of the uh, eyelids or lashes and to make the patient relax so that they're not squeezing during this procedure. Depending on how much the volume that you're injecting, if you're injecting more than a tenth of a cc, you have to be prepared to do a paracentesis if the central retinal artery is closed. 
as long as the artery is pulsating, we tend to wait and observe for the patient after the um, injection. The other caveat is that depending on what medication you use and you're injecting into the eye, uh, the follow-up is, is, is important. For patients with steroids, I follow them up more readily right after the injection within a few days. For patients that have uh, in the anti-VEGF inhibitors where the risk of glaucoma or infection is somewhat less, I think that uh, you can follow those up with a phone call in most cases and then subsequently see them in follow-up several weeks later. With the increasing frequency of injection, we have a real traffic jam in the office so that if you can have your office staff help you in monitoring the patient afterwards, it reduces the congestion in the office and the amount of time that is required for follow-up. Pressures, of course, have to be checked much more frequently with intravitreal steroids. What's the setting where you give these shots generally? Do you do it in, in, the, in the lane? Do, do yeah, you do it usually in I do it in the office, in the exam room, uh, in the uh, chair, somewhat reclined with the patient lying back with an assistant to help me in case uh, there is a closure of the central retinal artery and re the patient requires paracentesis. Do you have special recommendation for cases where, probably now going to be a growing number of cases, where patients require multiple injections over the course of a year? Do, do, do you try to, to pick sites that are widely separated on the eye? Do you avoid going near the previous needle track? In, in most cases, um, the gauge of the needle is pretty small. And uh, from our, his, our past experience with gases, going in the area this, uh, in the same area with multiple passes doesn't seem to be a problem. Uh, with a small 30-gauge needle. With the larger needles, you want to perhaps change location periodically, but the most comfortable place for the patient is probably in the infratemporal area, and the better uh, chances of keeping uh, the needle away from the lashes. I asked Dr. Chang about the direction of vitreoretinal surgery. Unsurprisingly, his answer was miniaturization. Well, I believe that currently there's a strong interest in using small-gauge transconjunctival incisions that are self-sealing. And I think that we are capable of going much smaller than 20-gauge. And the issues currently are whether we stay with the 23-gauge or try to proceed with 25-gauge. At this point in time, it seems that 25-gauge technology is moving along quite well. And the advantages of 25-gauge uh, are uh, that uh, it is smaller, but I think it allows us to really incorporate other features in uh, or multiple functions in one instrument and then uh, perhaps combine it and for the more severe cases to be used in more complicated cases of using 20-gauge format. So I think that it would probably be a good idea to stay with two formats either the 25-gauge and then the 20-gauge is a backup for the more complex cases that require more manipulation or uh, silicone oil. I find that 23-gauge does not serve the entire purposes uh, currently uh, that we need because the small cannulas do not allow the insertion of uh, angled instruments. 
the use of silicone oil may be more difficult in some of these cases because the cannula may separate from the silicone oil line and that 25 gauge technology is moving along quite rapidly. Several instances where 25 gauge has improved is the light sources have improved tremendously. We are now able to increase the amount of light entering the eye. The light probes have been modified to allow a larger angle of dispersion, better illumination, and pretty soon we'll be able to have just the same amount of lighting in a 25 gauge system compared to 25 to a 20 gauge system. I already incorporate the 25 gauge infusion line in most of my cases and with the addition of the xenon light with a better light probe I believe that probably I can incorporate 25 gauge in the lighting sources. And finally the cutting technology is improving and the instruments are more rigid, they're less flexible, they're more durable and ultimately 25 gauge I think can be more acceptable and perhaps even save time which is the ultimate goal of the surgery. Stanley, when, when you talk about multifunctionality in a 25 gauge instrument, are there particular tools that, that you're thinking of? Uh, yes, well I think that um, we would be able to then have better instrumentation such as lighted scissors and lighted uh, forceps we could tr truly do uh, bimanual surgery and the combination of a light with a 25 gauge instrument might be more advantageous again in the more complicated cases another combination might be a lighted cutter a diathermy with cutting uh, those are separate other areas that uh, other instruments that we might consider but ultimately, these will be in the 20-gauge 20, 20 format, combining both the 25-gauge cutter and other 25-gauge uh, instrument. I asked Dr. Chang to describe some of the difficulties a retina surgeon might have in converting to 25-gauge instruments. The current difficulties of 25-gauge really relate to the flexibility of the instruments, the fact that the instruments are expensive and they're fragile so that if you only have one set of 25 gauge instruments you have to be sure that they're always uh, working and not uh, damaged in any way through the processing after surgery and one of the other problems is as you move the eye the instruments can be flexible and the instrument tends to move the opposite direction from the way you move the eye as you put pressure on the sclerotomies. Uh, so you have to learn how to work with instruments that are too flexible. The other uh, problems are the lighting and right now the um, the small angle of illumination makes it difficult to use with wide-angle systems. I asked Dr. Chang what aside from instrumentation is getting his attention. Another uh, hot area is the use of vitrectomy for diabetic macular edema. When should vitrectomy be done for diabetic macular edema? And uh, my own indications for diabetic macular edema are somewhat limited. Uh, in Japan, several people are performing uh, vitrectomy and removal of the ILM to treat macular edema. Uh, I think that the results from American studies on diabetic edema where there's no traction do not appear to really justify the procedure. It is quite possible that doing a vitrectomy can 
allow the whatever cytokines remain in the vitreous to probably leave the eye or be evacuated from the eye much more rapidly. But uh, the role of vitrectomy is really uncertain. So I'm limiting myself to doing vitrectomy in those cases where there's either visible traction through a, a cellophane or taut hyaloid membrane uh, that's demonstrable uh, by OCT or can be seen clinically. I combine uh, steroids sometimes with the vitrectomy. The other exciting area is whether a combination of steroids and laser treatment would be more effective in treating macular edema. I think that these are this is an area that needs to be explored and hopefully we'll have some ways of improving the vision better after laser photocoagulation compared with just laser photocoagulation alone. Uh, there's a very good study now and uh, we should support studies from the DRCR network, which is NEI-sponsored activity. Anterior and posterior segment surgery have been influenced by the development of surgical dyes. I asked Dr. Chang to discuss the role of ICG in membrane peeling surgery. I would say there's a lot of interest currently in whether ICG should be used in staining internal limiting membrane, both for macular holes and macular puckers. And it's become fairly clear that those patients who, in which ICG is used for peeling ILM uh, do not appear to have as good a visual result, both in macular holes and macular pucker. Uh, this was shown by Dr. Kampik's group in Munich that the patients who had macular hole surgery and underwent ILM peeling with ICG just did not do as well visually, but several other groups have confirmed this. And most recently, I was in a meeting in Spain where uh, an Italian study, a multicenter study, uh, where they compared the membrane peeling and ILM peeling without ICG to membrane peeling followed by ICG staining of the ILM and removal of the ILM for macular pucker. And in this randomized study, they also found in preliminary results that the visual acuity after membrane peeling and ICG staining of the ILM and removal, uh, those patients did not have as good a visual outcome. So perhaps there is some effect of the ICG or the peeling of the ILM that affects the final visual outcome. In addition, I think that we need to find better ways of assessing the visual acuity after macular surgery or the visual function, and perhaps we could not use visual acuity alone. Well, one example is that we recently did a study where we evaluated with multifocal ERG the effects of uh, membrane peeling in macular puckers, both before and after the surgery. And while the visual acuity improved in almost every case, uh, it was surprising to me that the multifocal ERG amplitudes around the center seemed to be decreased, perhaps of the uh, uh, because of the result of peeling a membrane and perhaps ILM as part of the surgery. So. It was surprising to me that the uh, the multifocal uh, amplitudes were reduced even though the visual acuities improved. This is somewhat paradoxical. So we're beginning to do studies on looking at microperimetry to look for paracentral scotoma, to look at 
not only uh, the central visual function but the paramacular function and to listen to some of the complaints of patients. I think this will be an interesting uh, aspect to macular surgery, which probably accounts for about 50% of our surgeries now. Do you think that the reason that the acuity is poorer in the studies demonstrating it with the indocinic green staining group is because of the fact that indocinic green is probably toxic? Or do you think that there's some other? We don't know if it's toxicity or whether because we removed the ILM and perhaps part of the footplate of Mueller cells that there is some secondary degeneration of the retinal cells that are supported by the glial cells in the retina. This is something we need to learn. Whether other dyes will be more safe, Tripan Blue is currently being used. It seems to be a little safer in at least uh, cell culture testing, but it may not be as effective as stainer. Other people are using triamcinolone to help identify cortical vitreous. And I think that this is a very useful tool in looking at layers of cortical vitreous because we're beginning to see that when we think we've removed vitreous, the use of uh, triamcinolone sometimes out highlights areas that the cortical vitreous layer still remains intact. And I think back to um, Dick Green's comments that the posterior hyaloid is not a membrane but a layer of collagen, uh, that vitreous collagen that can sometimes separate and a layer can be remain on the surface of the retina. We just couldn't see this before, but with the use of triamcinolone, uh, it really helps us identify these, uh, these layers. Finally, I asked Dr. Chang if there are any diagnostic tools he finds especially valuable. Uh, I would say that OCT has really become an invaluable adjunct to the, my practice. I rarely use fluorescein angiography except to help define the extent of choroidal neovascularization, but for diabetes... And for vein occlusions, I usually use OCT, which really tells me uh, some information, gives me information about the central thickness of the macula, and also whether any <clears throat> interventions have affected that thickness. So for me, uh, OCT is more useful. And what is most impressive is some work being done in Vienna and at Tufts on ultra-high resolution OCT, which has an axial resolution of three microns and can show different layers in the retina with greater detail. Uh, the combination of OCT and SLO needs to be explored. I think that the advantage of this instrument is that there can be multiple functions in one instrument. An SLO could give us more anatomic data from the appearance of the fundus. It can be combined with ICG and fluorescein angiography, and OCT data could be combined with it. So um, I think the instrumentation is definitely getting more sophisticated and offers great potential in helping us understand diseases much better. Stanley Chang, thank you very Stanley much. Chang, thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. It was great to see you again. Stanley Chang is Edward S. Harkness Professor and Chair of the Department of Ophthalmology, and director of the Edward S. Harkness Eye Institute of the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Now, comments from our listener response line. This is Carol Lee calling in from New York City concerning Dr. Recchia's article on changing trends in the microbiologic aspects of post-cataract and ophthalmitis. 
I thought this was an important article, especially given the epidemiologic importance of endophthalmitis, the number of cataract extractions done in this country each year. The frequency of endophthalmitis is probably approximately 0.1% still. Patients are frequently given topical antibiotics preoperatively, but what was interesting in this article was that the most frequently used topical antibiotics, including topical gentamicin, uh, was probably ineffective with respect to the uh, organisms which were cultured from the endophthalmitis patients studied Thankfully, in the vitrectomies that were performed for endophthalmitis, the cultures were shown to have organisms which were susceptible to both vancomycin and ceftazidine, currently the intravitreal antibiotics which retinal surgeons use empirically to treat potential bacterial endophthalmitis. It was also interesting to see that the majority, up to 95% of the patients who had vitreous sampling and culture-positive infection, had gram-positive bacteria. It will be interesting to see whether that's a fourth-generation fluoroquinolones, which we uh, are using more frequently now, actually do have uh, efficacy against these types of bacterial infections. I think that the article itself was very helpful in guiding cataract surgeons in their choices of potential prophylaxis, although certainly the role of prophylaxis was not specifically studied, nor has it been proven to be an important or effective prophylaxis against potential endophthalmitis. Now more about CME. As seen from here is going to roll out its CME project in phases. Initially, you will need to print out CME quizzes and mail them in for grading. Then, a few months later, we plan to go to an all-electronic format in which you'll be able to take the quiz and print out your CME certificate right online. Each As Seen From Here program will get you one half hour of CME credit. The quizzes and certificates will cover blocks of four programs for a total of two credit hours. The first quiz will cover programs one through four, the second quiz programs five through eight, and the third quiz programs nine through this podcast, number 12. You can download any programs you've missed by going to asseenfromhere.com and clicking on the Programs button. As Seen From Here, all the quality of a national meeting every week on your MP3 player. Ask questions of Dr. Chang or of any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.